Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And we join again for the Shir on Rashi. We are up to the Sedra of Vayera, Perik Yudchet, and we're still in the second Pasuk, Pasuk Bet. And we'll go back to the beginning of the Pasuk, and then we'll carry on from where we were in the Rashi. And it says, uh, well, let's go back to the very beginning, because it's going to be relevant to minute anyway. Vayera elav Hashem ve'elone mamre. Hashem appeared to him, i.e. to Abraham, in ole elone mamre. And he, Abraham, was sitting at the entrance of his tent, literally like the heat of the day, in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw, that behold, there were three men, now, we talked about this last week, Rashi said on the words, it means in front of him, but it says, alav, is Elosha Nakia who Kalpe Hamalachim. It's a polite expression regarding the Malachim because they were heavenly, so they came as it were from heaven to say that they were above him rather than Lefanav directly in front of him. But Rashi has said they were in front of him. And when the Pasuk continues, Vayar, he saw, and he ran towards them, from the entrance of the tent, and he bowed down to the ground. So we'll pick up the Rashi on the word Vayera, sorry, Vayar. And Rashi says, Mahu, Vayar, Vayar, Shte Pa'amim. Why does it say he saw, he saw twice? So if we look in Pasuk Bet, it says at the beginning, he lifted up his eyes, Vayar, and he saw, and there were three men standing in front of him. Vayar, and he saw again, Vayaratzlikrotam, and he ran towards them. So what is the second Vayar? Now, there's also a subtext to Rashi's question, which is what's going on with Vayaratsi Likratam? And how is it connected to the second Vayar? And there's another question underlying or that, that we will have with the words Vayaratsi Likratam, but I'll let us work that out from Rashi. So Rashi says, I'll go back, Vayar, Mahu Vayar, Vayar Amim. Why does it say he saw twice? And the answer is harishon kamashma'o. The first one means what it sounds like. The hasheni loshon havana. And the second one does not mean literally what it sounds like. It means um, an expression of understanding. Like in English, you can say, I see it now. I see the picture. I see the idea. It means I understand. So in Hebrew also, bayar can either mean kamashma'o, the most the meaning that is literal, the meaning what it sounds like from the word Shema. And there's the other meaning, which is perhaps more idiomatic. Just by the way, one of the uh, chidushim I learned at the feet of Nechama Leibovitz, literally, was there is something more literal than pshat. Sometimes we translate pshat as the literal meaning. That's not correct. Pshat can also be idiomatic. Um, um, uh, when Eliezer went to find Rivka and he had all of his um, master's possessions, biyado, in his hand. So the pshat is that means he was in control of his master's possessions. But the mashma'ut is the literal meaning, 
which would mean actually physically in his hand. And Rashi has to explain that there, and we'll get there when we get to Chayisara. But here Rashi says the first meaning of Vayar is Kamashma'o. He doesn't say the Pshat and the Midrash. That's not what's going on here at all. It's the literal meaning and the non-literal meaning. But they're both really part of Pshat. Anyway, so the literal meaning is he saw, had a vision with his eyes. And the second meaning is Havana, understanding. So what did he understand when he saw the three men? So Rashi continues, Nistakel, he looked, that they were standing in one place, the Hevin, and he understood that they didn't want to trouble him. So they thought he was old and ill and busy, so they weren't coming towards him. So therefore, so he uh, preempted and he ran towards them. And then Rashi, there's a r- old bit of Rashi in brackets, Barashi Yashan, which might be in your book, it might not, it probably is, but it may not be authentic Rashi. And it says, And even though they knew that he was coming towards them, Amdu bimkomam lichvodo. They stood in their place to honor him, and to show him that they didn't want to trouble him. That's the text in an old version of Rashi. So Rashi really has two problems, one of which he spells out and the other which he doesn't. The one he spells out is why does it say Bayar twice? The one which he doesn't spell out is if, as Rashi says, Nitzavim alav, which is where the men were, what the men were doing. They were standing, and Rashi says Nitzavim alav means lefanav, in front of him. Why then does he have to run towards them? If they're standing in front of him, then she, all he has to do is get up and say hello. So why does it say Vayaratzli Krotam? So Rashi has explained that, and he's explained why Vayaratzli Krotam comes on to the second Vayar. So the second Vayar tells us, Loshan Havana, understanding, that they were standing in front of him, but nevertheless at a distance, and they weren't closing the gap. They weren't coming all the way towards him. They were standing at a distance. They were standing at a distance so as not to trouble him. So what did he do? So even though they were standing in front of him, it was at a distance, hence he ran towards them. Now then Rashi says something else, and I've spent most of today trying to work out if this is a second opinion in Rashi, and I've concluded that it is, but I'm still puzzled by why it's not introduced with Devar Acher, another explanation. And maybe you can uh, share my uh, conundrum and see if you've got a better answer than I have. Now, um, in most editions, it says here, um, Baba Metzia, or Bavaba Metzia, in Baba Metzia, and he's now quoting from the Gemara. As it happens, his quote from the Gemara is not exactly the same as our text of the Gemara, but it's similar. And he says, It's written, sorry, Baba Metzia says, but the Torah says, it's written, um, they were standing by him or on him. And it also writes that he ran towards them. So it points out straight away, there's a contradiction between those two. Were they standing in front of him? And if so, why did he have to run towards them? So says the Gemara, Kad 
Chaziyuhu, Dahave Share Vaasar, when they saw that he was untying and tying, i.e., his bandages, because remember this is the third day after his Brit Mila, so he's still wounded, and he's tying and untying his bandages, perhaps changing the bandages, or it doesn't say that exactly. Pershu Himenu, they separated from him. In other words, they went backwards. Miyad Bayarat Likratam. Immediately he ran towards them. So what I think is another explanation, and I think it is because it puts the Malachim in a different situation. According to this, what I will call the second explanation, the Malachim came all the way towards him and then backed off, and then he ran towards them. According to the first explanation, they didn't come all the way towards him. They stayed at a distance. Then he ran towards them. But the second explanation has the Malachim coming further and then going back. And that's why I think it's two separate explanations. I couldn't find any discussion on this. Um, and I couldn't find any suggestion that there should be a Devar Acher written here. Maybe the reference to Baba Metzia, which is quite rare in Rashi to give that reference in such an explicit fashion. He does it from time to time, but it's not common. Normally we have to look at the footnotes underneath the article translation to see where it's from. Um, but maybe that counts as Rashi said what I, Rashi, am saying, and now I'm going to tell you what the Gemara says. Um, there is also a question on this second version, because if it is the case that the Malachim came towards him and then stood back because they saw that he was dealing with his bandages, and then he runs, what word will we expect after that? He ran acharehem, after them. If they move backwards, he ran after them. But we don't have that. We have Likrotam. He ran towards them. So that's a little bit of a problem. It's not the biggest problem in the world, but it's a little bit of a problem with the second interpretation. And maybe that's why he gave the first interpretation as well. Okay, we will move on unless there are any comments or questions. Um, yes. Just a thought, it's straying from Shark quite a bit, but this... Um description of Abraham tying and untying his bandages sort of reminds me of the story of um, like Eliyahu and awaiting Mashiach like yes. is he tying and untying like that's quite beautiful imagery that like maybe he's tying and untying one at a time and then running after. I think it's the same Lushan. I think it's the same in Aramaic it's um, uh, yeah. and you're right um, yes you've just reminded me I have the same thought so there's the Midrash that um, one of the rabbis, I forget which, wants to know when the Mashiach will come. And Eliyahu says, go and ask him and go to Rome. And you'll see him amongst the beggars. And the way you'll recognize him, uh, no, here's the point. The way you'll recognize him is he unties and ties his bandages one by one. He doesn't yeah. take them all off. So the other beggars take them all off. But the Mashiach, because he wants to be ready for the call, he only takes off one at a time and puts it straight back on. Um, so that, that's a significant part of the story. I don't know if that's significant to Abraham. He's taking off one and putting it back on. And Perhaps just... Oh, there, there certainly is a, a resonance. Yeah, just that eagerness to, like, you know, not untie everything at once so that you're ready to get up and go and yeah. when the moment requires. Yeah. Although Abraham was only wounded in one place, so perhaps he only had to have one set of bandages. <laughs> I don't know. But you're right, there, there certainly is an echo. Okay, thank you for that. Now we go on to Pasukimo. Vayomar, and he said, Adonoi, 
and I'm deliberately stressing that it's a kamatz rather than a patach, my masters, imna matzati chen be'enecha, if I have found favor in your eyes, al na ta'avor me'al avdecha, please do not pass from away from your servant. In other words, please come in and let me give you hospitality, as he will uh, exemplify in the next few verses. Um, but the Rashi is, is concerned about the meaning of Adonai. Um, and it's got two alternative meanings, and they're very different. So Rashi says, Vayomar Adonai imna v'gomer, l'gadol shabahem amar. He spoke to the chief of them. Um, <clears throat> and Mephoshim asks, how would he know which is the chief? So the Gemara says that when three people are walking, the most choshev one, the most senior one, should go in the middle, uh, and the, his deputy on his right, I think, and the deputy to him on the left. So it should be obvious that the most choshev, the most significant one, is the one in the middle. So he spoke to the Godol Shubahem, maybe he worked it out, the one in the middle. The Kura'am Kulam Adonim. But he called all of them masters. And that's why Adonoi is in the plural. The Maharal says normally it will be a patach. That's how you say my plural thing. But that patach can often turn into a kamatz. That's what the Maharal says. So here it's a kamatz, but it still represents the pluralness. He's talking to all three, but he speaks to one of them. And that's why he goes into the singular when he says be'enecha. So he speaks to all of them because they're all his adonim, they're all his masters, but he is directing his words to the, the, uh, the chief of them. And if the chief decides to <coughs> come into the tent and enjoy the hospitality, then the other two will schlep along as well. So continues Rashi says, uh, I'll go back. Ukara'am kulam adonim, he calls them all masters. Ulagadol omar. And to the senior one, he says, al ta'avor, which again is in the singular. Please do not pass. And since the chief did not pass, the other two, the, the mates, stayed with him. The other two stayed with the gadol. And if, according to this reading, the word Adonoi, is chol, it's profane as opposed to kodesh. Um, if it's not 100% clear what that means, let's wait a moment and Rashi will give the alternative and you'll see why then the word Adonai becomes kodesh rather than chol. Um, another explanation, and this clearly, by the way, is an alternative and it's mutually exclusive to the first. Kodesh hu, the word Adonai is sacred and he was talking to Hashem. For him to wait for him, for Hashem to wait for Abraham. Until he had run and brought in the guests. So, if you go back to Basit Aleph, we talked about how the fact that Yerah Elov Hashem, Hashem appeared to him and didn't say anything. Maybe you could say that the message was to be conveyed through the three malachim, who after all were emissaries of Hashem. Or you can say Hashem appeared and hung around all the time that the guests were being uh, treated, were being uh, given hospitality, 
And then in Pasuk Yud Gimel, Hashem says, I'm going to, I think I need to speak to Abraham about Sodom and Amorah. I'm sorry, no, no, that was uh, about the message to Abraham, to Sarah, about the birth of Yitzchak and why she laughed. I'm sorry. Um, the discussion with Hashem asked himself, should he speak to Abraham is in Pasuk Yud Chet. And after the visitors have gone in Pasuk Kav Bet, then Hashem speaks to Abraham in Pasuk Kav Gimel. So according to Rashi's second explanation, Hashem appears to Abraham. He's got something to say. And Abraham says, my master, referring to Hashem, Im um, if I found favor in your eyes, hang on while I go and do the hospitality with the guests. Now, there's two things that Rashi still got to say. Uh, the first is, <clears throat> Even though this was been said after If you look in Pasuk Bet, we have a big problem with the simple chronology according to this second explanation. According to the second explanation in Pasuk Gimel, Abraham says to Hashem, would you mind if you wait a moment while I go and get the guests? But he's already got the guests because he already ran after them in Pasuk Bet. So if he's asking Hashem, Hashem, do you mind waiting while I go after the guests? That should have been written before Bayoratzli Krotam in Pasuk Bet. So Rashi says to that, Ha'amira Kodem Lachain Haita. The speaking to Hashem was before the running after the guests. So they're the wrong way around, written down the wrong way around. You know what? It happens. As Rashi says, Kamoshe Parashti, like I, Rashi explained in Perik Vav Pasuk Gimel, Etzel, with reference to Lo Yadun Ruchi Ba'adam, Hashem says, my spirit will not judge man forever. I'm going to bring a flood. Shenichtav Achar V'yoled Noach. And that is written after Noah had children. But in fact, it happened the other way around, as Rashi proves with a little bit of, or quite a bit of work, that the decree must have come after Rashi, uh, sorry, that, the, that Noah had the children after the decree. As Rashi says there, here, the EF Shalomarke, it's impossible to say so, but the decree came after Noah had children. Ela Imkain Kodem Gezerat Esrim Shana, but rather, uh, the Gezerah came first by 120 years. So, in that case in Noah, um, Hashem says, I'm going to destroy the world, but that is written after Noah has children. But in fact, Noah had children after the decree. So the two events are written the wrong way round. Rashi brings that as an example to say, it happens, Ein there is no chronological order in the Torah, and sometimes even events in one verse to the next verse are the wrong way around chronologically. So it's okay to say that in Pasuk Gimel, Hashem says, sorry, Abraham says to Hashem, please wait a moment, and in Pasuk Bet, then he runs after the guests. The other thing to say is, not in my version of Rashi. Ah, that's why I've got other versions available.
I'm sorry for the delay. Normal service will be resumed in a moment. Okay, no, it's not in Rashi. That's why neither of my texts have it. But why is Rashi telling us this? We learn, the Gemara learns from this, that Hachnasat Orchem is equivalent to, or maybe even greater than, the Kabel Pnei Hashchina, from receiving the Shechina itself. If you look at what the, the implication of this is a remarkable idea, that the greatest prophetic experience imaginable, that Abraham has a visit from HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, and is about to engage in dialogue with Hashem, that is pushed aside in order to do the mitzvah of Hachnasat Orchim. And that tells us how great is the mitzvah of Hachnasat Orchim in particular, and Chesed in general, that even Hashem is pushed aside, and Hashem doesn't seem to mind being pushed aside. So, we have two ways of understanding what's going on with the words, Vayamar Adonai. And the implication of the two ways is very significant halachically about the status of the word Adonai. According to Rashi's first explanation, Abraham is talking to the angels, who he thinks are men, and he just refers to them politely as my masters. And that way, the word Adonai is not the name of Hashem. According to the second explanation, Abraham is speaking to Hashem himself, and Adonai is, as we often use it, the name of Hashem himself. When one writes a Sefer Torah, one has to have in mind, before one writes even the slightest uh, bit of a letter, that one is writing L'Shem Kedusha Sefer Torah. But the Sofa has to have in mind that he is writing for the sake of the holiness of the Sefer Torah. And if he doesn't have that in mind, then the Sefer Torah is possible, is invalid. But on top of that, when he comes to write the name of Hashem, he has to have in mind, I am writing this for the sake of the sanctification of the name itself. And if he doesn't have that intention when he writes the name of Hashem, then the Sefer Torah is possible. Another nafkimina, another halachic difference, is whether you can erase a word in a Sefer Torah. Sometimes the sofa has to because he's made a mistake and he needs to correct the, uh, the mistake that he's made. He's put in the wrong word. He's missed out a letter or, or there's some other type of mistake. So he gets out his razor blade and scratches away a safer Torah. When I was a sofa in a very, very amateur fashion, I once had to scratch away a bit of the Megillah I was writing. And to my horror, I made a hole all the way through to the other side of the text. And, and I had to patch it, which is not very mahudar, not very beautiful, but it works anyway. So you uh, scratch away a word, scratch away a letter, but if it is part of the name of Hashem, one cannot scratch it away. One cannot erase any part of any name of Hashem. And so in those two related halachot, there is a huge difference between a word which is the name of Hashem and a word which is not the name of Hashem. Um, I tried to find it in the Rambam today, but I couldn't find it. But I recall that the Rambam, who has a list of all the doubtful names of Hashem in the Sefer Torah, and he needs that list in the laws of writing a Sefer Torah because the Sofa needs to know whether it's Kodesh or Chol. This name is Kodesh, I believe, but I couldn't find that to check, but I believe the Rambam says this name is Kodesh. But Rashi, in his reference to Kodesh and Chol, is referring to this halacha that we have to know whether the word that the Sofa is writing at this point in the Sefer Torah is one of the names of Hashem or is it not? Okay. So we move on to Pasuk Dalet. So Abraham now 
describes the hospitality that he's going to offer to the three visitors. Yukach na ma'at mayim, a little bit of water will be please taken. V'rachatsu raglechem, and you wash your feet. V'hishanu, and you recline tacha ha'etz, under the eights, which I will leave untranslated for a moment. So Rashi says on the word yukach na, al yedei shaliach, it's done through a shaliach. The water is, is taken by a messenger. Now, why does Rashi say that? Probably because in Pasuk Hay, Abraham continues to say what he's going to do for the Malachim, and he says, pat lechem. I will take a loaf of bread, or piece of, slice of bread, um, for you. So Rashi is pointing out that there's a simple but significant switch in the grammatical construction. Yukachna is passive. Ekach is active. So why does the Torah say that the water will be taken passive, but the bread, I will get active? So Rashi is telling you that the water is got al shaliach. Now, once we've said that, the next question is, so what? Why is that significant? It's significant enough for the Torah to show to the discerning reader, one is passive, one is active. Why does the Torah bother to do that? After all, it could have said, yukach nach, yukach pat lechem, water will be got for you and bread will be got for you. By whom? Doesn't matter. Maybe Abram, maybe a servant, not significant. But the very fact that the Torah is precise, one is passive, one is active, shows it is significant. And that is why Rashi says, after in Pasuk Dalet saying, that Hashem paid back to his children, Abraham's descendants, by means of a shaliach. When the Jewish people got water, they got it through a shaliach. What does that mean? Shneemar, as it says in the Midvaperikav, Vayarem Moshe et Yado, Moshe lifted up his hand, Vayach et Hasela, and hit the rock. And as we know, as a result of his hitting the rock, water came out. So water was provided for the Jewish people through Moshe Rabbeinu, which is a midda a response to the fact that Abraham provided water uh, through a messenger, through a third party for the angels. There is, of course, the other half of the story, which is not spelled out. When it comes to the bread, Abraham provides that directly. When it comes to the bread that the Jewish people ate, i.e. the man, that was also provided directly by Hashem, not through a third party. The Jews got out of their tent every morning, and there it was, directly from Hashem, not even delivered by somebody else. So the Yukach Ma'at Mayim is Anyadei Shaliach, and the Jewish people received their water through a Shaliach. Now, let us examine the Pasuk and the example that Rashi brought to show that water was provided by a Shaliach. So the Shaliach was Moshe. Interestingly, you might have thought that the water is normally associated with Miriam, um, but at least in the Chumash, we're told explicitly, in a way we aren't told about Miriam, explicitly, that Moshe, after Miriam had died, Moshe hit the rock and out came water. Now, 
we might be aware that Moshe hits the rock twice, and on two separate occasions. One is in Pasha B'Shalach, where the people, just after they cross the Yamsuf, they're very thirsty, and Hashem says, go and hit the rock, and Moshe goes and hits the rock and brings forth water. In Pasha Chukat, Hashem says, go to the rock, take your staff, and say to the rock, bring out water. And the way Rashi, anyway, explains Moshe's sin, uh, <clears throat> there are many other explanations, is that Moshe hit the rock rather than speaking to it. So the question is asked, if Rashi wants to find an example of when water is delivered by a shaliach, why does he not quote the example in Beshalach, which was problem-free, and instead he quotes the example in Chukat, which was problem-full? When we think of Moshe hitting the rock, most of us do not think, oh, that's a nice example of water being provided by a shaliach. We think disaster. Moshe was prevented from entering Eretz Israel all because of that hitting that rock. So why does Rashi quote the example which is flawed? So one suggestion is that Avraham's not bringing the water himself, but delegating that to another party is also flawed. Now that's very, very harsh. After all, maybe one person gets the water, one person gets the bread, in this case, Abraham gets the bread. He physically can't do two things at once. He's not an angel. He can only do one thing at once. So in order to speed up the process, this is good project management. He gets somebody else to bring the water. However, just like we judge Moshe very, very strictly, more strictly than we judge anybody else, similarly, we judge Abraham very strictly. And the fact that he didn't fulfill that mitzvah personally is a flaw. It's a very small, but nevertheless on Abraham's scale, significant failing. And therefore the Pasuk that is brought also represents a failing of the Shaliach, in this case Moshe, to do the job properly. We can go further because maybe Abraham had very good reasons for not bringing the water personally. Because after all, what were they gonna do with the water? They were going to wash their feet. And in a minute, Rashi will give a particular reason why Abraham was concerned that they will wash their feet. Even without that particular reason, it's a bit of a personal matter, having your, scrubbing off your feet from the hot, dusty desert. And given what Rashi's about to say, it's even more of a personal matter that maybe Abraham guessed, it's really not nice, it's not polite for me to bring the water and stand over them when they're washing their feet. It would be much more delicate to bring the water by a third party. Similarly, Moshe is confronted by these hundreds of thousands of thirsty, screaming, hungry people, and he realizes that if he speaks the rock, it's going to take too long. So therefore, he hits the rock, again, with the best of intentions. But in both cases, those best of intentions were suboptimal. Abraham may have had a good reason why he thought it would be better to delegate the bringing of the water, but he was mistaken. He should have, nevertheless, even though it might have been a little bit awkward standing there while you wash your feet. He should have done personally the mitzvah hachnas of Orchim to the nth degree. Similarly, even though he might have thought he had a good reason for overriding Hashem's instruction about speaking to the rock, he should not have overridden Hashem's instruction about speaking to the rock. So the fact that Rashi quotes this pasuk rather than another example of Moshe being a shaliach bringing the water is perhaps to show that the action of Moshe just like the action of Abraham was in some way 
flawed and not quite the perfect way of doing things. So what is it that they're going to do when they wash their feet? So Rashi continues, um, they should wash their, you should wash your feet. Why was Abraham so particular that they should wash their feet? And as Rashi will say, this is actually one of those cases where, and one of the many cases where Rashi sees two incidents in the Torah, similar but different. And whenever he sees two incidents which are similar but different, like Yukach, uh, the water is brought and Abraham directly brings the bread. That's another example. Rashi is uh, driven to explain why one is, they're similar, but there is a difference. The difference is in the case of Lot. So these very same angels, two of these three angels, are going to go to Lot's house. And as we will read in Perigiotet, Parsim Bet, Lot doesn't say, wash your feet first. He says, go to bed first and wash your feet in the morning. Abraham says, wash your feet now. So Rashi needs to explain why it's important that they wash their feet right now. Says Rashi, Kasavur Shahem Arvim. He thought they were Arabs. Who bow down to the dust on their feet. And he was particular but they should not bring idolatry into his house. So it's a funny idea that they worship the dust of their feet. I have no idea if that is a known to be a practice amongst Arabs then or now, but Rashi, based on the Midrash, um, suggests that there was Abraham's concern. One can suggest that if these are travelers, or Abraham thinks these are travelers, whose, whose very livelihood and life is being nomadic, is traveling through the desert, is schlepping things from one place to another, so their whole livelihood is journeying in the desert. And therefore, the physical mark of journeying in the desert, the dust on their feet, becomes something that they value, they put on a pedestal, they actually bow down to as a Vodazara. So perhaps that's why we have this strange idea that they worship the dust of their feet. Which, by the way, I just want to mention, once we start saying, as Rashi says, that Abraham thought they were idolaters. They were pretty lowly idolaters. They didn't even have the uh, um, finesse to worship some like mighty statue. They worshiped dust, at least that's what Abraham thought they did. Nevertheless, he welcomed them into his house. This is Abraham, the Kirov worker. Abraham who does not say, you're idolaters, you're dust worshipers. I don't want to have anything to do to you. So Abraham welcomes these people into his house. But at the same time, but at the same time, one can say his Kira program was, you're welcome in my house, but without your dust. You wash the dust off first. I don't want you bringing that avodas into my house. Then Rashi says, and I've already said, this is really Rashi's question. Aval Lot, Shalom Hikpid, but Lot who was not particular, he put the sleeping before the washing. As it says, as, as Lot said to the angels when they arrived in Saddam, you go to sleep, and then after you spent the night, you wash your feet. So Rashi is explaining that the difference between Abraham and Lot was a sensitivity to the problem of Odazara in your house. Lot, as, as Rashi paints him over and over again, 
is a mediocre imitation of Abraham. He does things like Abraham does, but he just doesn't get it. And he doesn't get, for instance, Abraham's sensitivity, hakpada in the Hebrew, of not having a bodhisattva enter into his house, even the dusty sort. And that is why when uh, we now understand it's all because of this sensitivity to a bodhisattva, and that explains the difference between Abraham's treatment and Lot's treatment of his guests. Incidentally, um, when we get to uh, the Torah in Peret Yotet, we find that Rashi suggests a different reason for Lot saying, sleep first and wash your feet in the morning. And I thought of explaining it, discussing it now, but I won't, I'll discuss it then. Um, but it's certainly a question why Rashi refers to two different reasons. Here, he says the reason Lot said, sleep first and wash your feet later, is just because he's not bothered about the Avodah about the idolatry of the dust. But there, in Perigyotet, he gives a, Rashi gives a different reason. We'll discuss that in Yitzhashem when we get there. And finally, Rashi says on the words, Tachat ha'etz, Tachat ha'ilan, under the tree. And I'd like to say this is a simple Rashi. I know it's always a bit of a risk saying that, but I think it is. Or certainly it can be understood in a simple way. Because the word eitz has two meanings in Hebrew. One is wood and the other is tree. Eight means the same thing. So does, when, when Abraham says to his guests, Behishanu tachata eights, lean under the eights, does he mean under the wood? Maybe there's some sort of balcony, some sort of uh, covered area with wooden beams and his guests sit underneath that? Or does it mean they sit underneath the other meaning of the word eights, which is ilan, which is tree. And Rashi tells you it means under the tree. Why does Rashi say it means under the tree and not under some wooden beams that are over some sort of covered area? Because what are they doing under this eights? Hishanu, they are leaning under the eights. Now, if there are wooden beams and they're sitting underneath them, they need some other structure to lean against. Otherwise, they're not leaning. They're either sitting or they're lying. But if they're leaning, there needs to be something on which to lean. And therefore, Rashi says, it's a tree. Because when you sit under the tree, you lean against the tree. The two things come as a package, the shade and the leaning support. That's what a tree gives you, much as many other things as well. And wooden beams that happen to be over a covered area don't give you something to lean on. So that's why, perhaps, Rashi says it means a tree. Then we go on to Pasuk Hay. Says Abraham, as we've foretold, I will fetch a piece of bread, and nourish your hearts. After you will pass on, as you will go, Rashi's got something to say on that. And Rashi's got something to say on Ki Al Kain, but I'll just translate it now as because Avaratem, you have passed by your servant. In other words, you've come this far. Um, in other words, please let me do all this. You'll um, uh, eat, you'll drink, uh, you'll wash your feet, you'll eat bread that will nourish your hearts. And then you'll go and you'll do all this because you've passed by your servant. In other words, you've come into the tent. And they said, so you shall do as you have said. In other words, Yes, thank you very much. We'll accept your kind offer of hospitality.
So Rashi says something um, I still find very interesting. I'm still a little bit bothered. Um, um, see, again, I'll invite you if you can help me understand why Rashi says this. And it will nourish your heart. So you have a piece of bread. Says Rashi, the Torah, the Nevi'im, Uba Ketuvim, Matzino, the Pita, Sa'adata, the Liba. In the Torah, and in the Nevi'im, and in the Ketuvim. So in every part of Tanakh, we find that bread, Pita, Aramaic for bread, Sa'adata, also Aramaic, the Liba, is a nourishment for the heart. So this idea that when Abraham says, um, I'll take a piece of bread and it will satisfy your heart. That is a common refrain. We find it in Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim, where the Torah, the Sa'adu Libchem. Torah, we find it here, this very spot. The Nevi'im, Sa'ad Libcha Pat Lechem. So that is comes from Shoftim Yutet. It's part of the terrible story, the Belegesh Bavgiva. Um, but basically, uh, there's one little detail of the story where there's a, a man staying with his father-in-law and uh, he's, the, the son-in-law says, I'm ready to go. And the father-in-law says, stay a little bit more and have a piece, a bit of bread, which will satisfy your heart. That's the case in Nevi'im. For Ketuvim, for Ketuvim, we have a postage in Tehillim, comes from Borchi Nafshi, Perakaftalot, Belechem Lavav Enosh Yisad, and bread will nourish, satisfy the heart of man. That's what Rashi says. Rashi says, I'm going to give you a Tanakh lesson. I'm going to show you in the Torah, it says bread satisfies your heart or nourishes your heart. So why does Rashi need to say this? Why does Rashi need to give us the three different examples? So <clears throat> what I think is the case is you might be wondering why Abraham says, I'll give you a piece of bread and it will nourish your heart. And there's two reasons why you might wonder that. The first is, there's other things on the menu. Abraham says, I'm going to give you a little bit of water, a little bit of bread. But what does he actually bring them? He brings them tongues of calf and mustard and cream. And we'll talk about that later. And he's going to bring them cake, but that, that in the end, that doesn't arrive. So why does he say, I'll give you a little bit of bread and that will satisfy your heart. Now, I, we understand why he says, I'll give you a little bit of bread. In Perkeover, we say this is an example of say little and do much. Abraham says a little and he actually has much more in store. But why doesn't he say, I'll give you a piece of bread and you can like wash and start your meal with that, as like we do today, and you'll get really excited by what's coming later. So Rashi wants to say that um, it's bread that is the thing that is sa'ad libcha, that is the nourisher nourishment of the heart. So you can give him all the calves in the world and all the mustard and all the cream, but the ikar is bread, which is sort of related to the fact, and there are other reasons as well, but why we make a meal over bread, and if we don't have bread, it's not a meal. I mean, to, to us today, where we don't eat like they did in Talmudic times, we don't eat like they did in Roman times, sometimes it seems a little bit strange that you can have a beautiful three-course meal and you don't happen to have a piece of bread, and it's not called a meal, you don't bench. Whereas if you just have a roll or a pitta and nothing else, that is a meal and you have washing and you have benching and it's got all the status of a meal. It seems a little bit strange to our customs and our palate, 
Um, in Talmudic times, it was, it was clear, but bread was the ikar, was the essence of the meal. If you have bread, you've got a meal. If you don't have bread, you don't have a meal. And that's what Abraham is saying here, and that's what Rashi is saying here. So you might think that it's strange. So I said there were two reasons. The two reasons are, you might think it's strange that Abraham says, satisfy yourself with bread, when in fact the main course is coming. Or even apart from that, you just might think it's strange that a piece of bread, pat lechem, is what is going to is going to satisfy your heart. It doesn't sound very, very uh, filling. It doesn't sound very substantial. So Rashi says, you know what? It is. Because it is a cast iron principle. We find it in Torah, in Nevi'im, in Ketuvim, that bread, more than anything else, is what nourishes the heart, is what sa'ad libchem. So that's why Rashi brings it here. Now, as I say, I said before, I'm not 100% convinced. Uh, I'm not 100% satisfied by what I'm saying. I don't see why Rashi quite needs to go into the extent of the Tanakh lesson. But if he does, I think I've suggested why it is. To explain Abraham's Loshan of, of all the things which are going to be sa'adu libchem, it's going to be the pat lechem, the piece of bread. Okay, then Rashi has something else to say. And it says like this, and he quotes it in the name of uh, the Amora, who is the origin of it. Um, and he says, Amor Rabbi Chama, Levchem, uh, sorry, Levavchem ein kativkan. It doesn't say Levavchem with a double vet. Ela Libchem, but rather your heart singular. So Levavchem, although this isn't like a strict rule, and, and it's more poetic, if it had a double vav, double vet, sorry, it means your heart's plural. But Libchem means your heart singular. And so Rabbi Chama is pointing out, but it doesn't say to the three angels, your hearts, plural, but it says rather your heart, singular, you, a lot of you having one heart. It tells you that the Yetzahara does not take hold of the Malachim. Now, what's one going to do with the other? Why single heart, no Yetzahara? So the first thing to say is there's another way of reading it which is just the double vet implies there's a Yetzirah and Yetzatov, two Yetzirah, two Yetzers, Yetzirah. Uh, and the single verb implies only one Yetzer, Yetzatov, and no Yetzirah. So that's one way of reading this Rashi. Double vet, two uh, inclinations, single vet, one inclination. But that's not the way most read it. Most read it as saying Libchem is plural, uh, sorry, Levavchem is plural, and Libchem is singular. But they've still got three separate hearts because they're three separate individuals. But what does it mean to have a separate heart? It means if two people have two different hearts, that means their hearts are not identical. If they have an identical heart, then you could say they've got the same heart, although it's like manifest in two different bodies. If there's no Yetzahara, there's no conflict, there's no battleground, there's no tension, there's only Yetzatov. A heart with Yetzatov is identical to another heart of Yetzatov. It's the very struggle between the Yetzirah and the Yetzatov, which is unique for each person. But if you don't have that struggle, if you have three Malachim, each of them with only a Yetzatov, then they're going to have the identical heart, which means they're going to have the same heart, which means we could say, slightly poetically, they share one single heart, and therefore it's Libchem in the singular, rather than Lavavchem in the plural. And that is the way the Mephoshim connect Rashi's statement but there's no Yetzirah in the heart of the Malachim with the singular nature of the word Libchem.
Now, Rashi continues with explaining the word achar ta'avoru, after you will pass. In other words, after, well, let's see what Rashi says. Achar kein teilechu. So Rashi's made two changes. He's basically translated the two Hebrew words and he's translated them, but with two significant changes. The second one is that he's explained ta'avoru as teilechu. What does it mean you will pass? Now, the problem with ta'avoru is it means you'll come into the tent and it also means you'll go out of the tent. Because when Abraham first met the Malachim, he said, um, oh, sorry, he said, don't pass by your servant. But then when he thanks them, um, he says, please do all this. Um, I'll tell you now, Rashi's going to say, is because you passed, which means you came into the tent. So avartem is a little bit vague as to what it means precisely. So Rashi says in this case that he's talking about, on the words achata avoru, it means teilechu. It means you'll go on your way. It means you'll pass as in you'll leave this place. But the other thing that Rashi's done is he added the word Cain after the word achar. After this, you will then go. Now the problem with the pasuk is if you read it from the beginning, it could be read as I will fetch some bread and I will satisfy your hearts after you have gone. Because acha is means after, but after what? After nothing in particular, says the Pasuk. So we can assume it's after what's gone before. I will after what's sorry, what's written before is after what's happened next. Because that's how we normally use the word after. A happens after B which means after B has happened, then A takes place. And that's how you could read it. Now, it wouldn't make sense, that's true. But you could read it, nevertheless, as I will give you the piece of bread after you've gone. Now, it doesn't make sense, because after they've gone, he's not going to run after them and give them a piece of bread. He's only giving them a piece of bread before they've gone. So that's why Rashi ends, adds the word came. Achar came. After this, then you will go. So I will get some water, I will get some bread, I will satisfy you. After this, adds Rashi, then you will go. And now, achata avoru makes sense. It means after Abraham has done all the hospitality stuff, then you will go. But it only makes sense by Rashi adding in the word Cain, so it's clear that after means after this has happened, then in the future you will go. And the next thing that Rashi says, and this is probably where we will end tonight, is ki al Cain avaratem. What does ki al Cain mean? So says Rashi, Ki hadavar hazer anim mikem, this thing I request from you, in other words, that you accept my hospitality, may acher sha'avartem alai lichvodi. Now, may acher, I'm going to translate as since or because. Because you have passed by me, which now means you've come into the tent, lichvodi to honor me. So, ki al Rashi replaces by me'acher, meaning after or because. And then he says, ki al kamo al-asher. <coughs> ki al is like al-asher. And what does al-asher mean? Um, says, uh, art scroll, in as much as. Now, in as much as. I'm not sure why art scroll sticks to in as much as, which is not exactly... Uh, a common phrase in our modern parlance. It means because. It means simply because. 
So ki al-kain, uh, which is hard to translate, and we can't really translate it word for word, because therefore, doesn't really make any sense in English. Says Rashi, it's an expression, it's an idiom that means because. And then he brings four examples from, uh, they're all from the Chumash, three from Bereshit, one from Amidbar, where it means because. And again, the third time tonight, I admit defeat, that I'm not sure why he brings four different examples when one, maybe two, would have sufficed. But Rashi brings four to show that ki al-kain means because. So, v'chein, similarly, ki al-kain mikra, kol ki al-kain mikra. Every ki al-kain that you find in scripture has this meaning. So the first is Lot talking to the angels. Ki al-kain ba'u betzel karotorati. Uh, sorry, he's not talking to the angels. He's talking to the townspeople who want the angels out of his house. And he says, don't hurt them. Ki al-kein karati, because they have come under the shade of my roof. The next one is when Yaakov defeats the angel that he's fighting with. And he says to Esau, ki al-kein ra'iti panecha. Uh, I have seen your face because I have seen your face. And the next one is ki uh, al-kein lo natatiha. Um, Yehuda laments that um, he's uh, the guilty party for not giving Tamar, uh, who's been widowed from his first two sons, and he hasn't given them her as a wife to his third son. Ki al-kein lo natatiha, and there it means because I did not give her. And finally, when Moshe is trying to persuade Yitro to come with the Jewish people on their grand journey into Eretz Israel, he says, Ki yadati because you know our camping grounds. Either you know the, what Hashem has done for us, or you know where we're going to stay in the desert because you've traveled this way before. But either way, Ki Al-Kain means because. So in each of the four examples that Rashi brings, and again, I admit uh, not knowing why Rashi brings all four examples, um, but in each one of them, Ki Al-Kain can be translated, indeed must be translated as because. And therefore, that's what it means here as well. So we have concluded Pasuk Hay, um, and I think we will leave Kemach and Solet and other things that happen in the course of this uh, hospitality venture until next week in the Hashem. Are there any comments or questions? Yes. I, sorry, was, I don't know if someone else said, sorry. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. Um, is there any reason why there's a separate Dibur Hamatchev for Kial Ken and why he doesn't just quote that um, below Kial Ken to Avartem? Yes, and I didn't make that clear. The first one is explaining what's Kial Ken Avartem. Where does the Avartem fit in, and what does the Avartem mean? So, because you have passed by me and you've honored me, therefore I request of you that you stay and accept my hospitality. So therefore he's explaining The second as you correctly notice, is what's That's a separate question. They happen to be related, but they really are two separate questions. Is that our question? Perfect, thank you. Okay, I will say thank you all very much. And um, I will see you, probably still Zoom you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you very Bye -bye. much. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Thanks.